It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a couple of Superman fans who just want a dope Superman movie. On today's Byword, we construct our ideal sequel to Man of Steel. With Henry Cavill returning to the role, the sky's the limit. Welcome to the Henry Cavill podcast, or so it would seem, with the recent news that Cavill will indeed be returning to the role of Kal-El, Clark Kent, Superman, and a sequel to Man of Steel in the earliest stages of development in today's Byword Big Talk, we'll be providing our pitches for what we'd like to see in said sequel. But first, the DC Cavill Power Hour starts off with... Dave, WB has found their white whales, plural. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how this is going to go, but uh, it's definitely an interesting choice. Um, Obviously, this news uh, has kind of rocked the uh, nerd world already. So by the time you're listening to this, it's probably been discussed ad nauseum. But uh, DC has announced, well, WB, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Shyamalan, Ding Dong, that uh, James Gunn and Peter Safran will co-lead the uh, film, TV, and animation division of DC Studios. And that's uh, that's quite a whopper. So uh, Gunn obviously is no stranger to uh, both DC and Marvel movies, having you know directed the three Guardians of the Galaxy movies, with the third one coming soon. Um, and obviously then jumping uh, to DC for a little while, doing the Suicide Squad as well as the Peacemaker TV show, of which the uh, second season, I think, is currently in development. So uh, Gunn is no stranger to the nerd world. And he is sort of a polarizing uh, a figure with some people really liking his style of movies, a sort of irreverent um, style that oftentimes goes for more obscure characters. Um, which is really interesting, I think, and bodes well for more uh, obscure characters in DC canon to maybe get a shot. Um, Peter Safran has been, uh, you know, sort of a manager, producer guy behind the scenes for a while, Um, has been involved in several of the movies at DC already, Aquaman, um, Peacemaker, the Shazam movies, Uh, also has his hands in the Conjuring franchise. So he is certainly not a stranger at Warner Brothers either. Um, so Gunn is supposed to be overseeing the creative side with Safran sort of being the manager and both reporting uh, directly to our uh, new favorite <laughs> supervillain, uh, David Zaslav. <laughs> so obviously I'm not a huge fan of Saf- Zaslav's move so far. However, it's interesting to see uh, what Gunn I- I- is looking to do here uh, on the creative side now that he is um, in charge. Uh, now, I, I do want to note that The Hollywood Reporter reported, because that's what they do, they're The Hollywood Reporter, that a Todd Phillips' Joker movie and sequel are not under the purview of Gunn, and that there has not been clarification 
if Matt Reeves is the Batman and any spin-offs and sequels that may come for that will be under the purview of Gunn. However, moving forward, anything else that DC does will be. And the deal is reportedly right now for four years, um, which doesn't seem like a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, uh, considering how long development on movies can take. Um, however, it's probably long enough to get the ball rolling on a whole bunch of stuff. During this time, Gunn is also going to be exclusive to Warner, so any directing that he does will probably be some of the projects that he's spearheading with the DC properties. So Chris, your take on this choice? It's really, really interesting. Um, I like the fact that it's a two-headed monster, and not all of that is is on the shoulders of one individual. You can't just copy and paste a, um, you know, a Kevin Feige. That's that's an outlier. I don't think that's an exception. Or, uh, excuse me, that's an outlier. I don't think it's like the norm. Um, I did see some some rumors online that Zaslav did offer the role of DC film to Feige, and he politely declined. So that was funny, if true. Um, you're you're exactly right in in Gunn being uh, a polarizing figure. You know, anytime he comes back in the news, all the old tweets are dredged up and and all of that stuff. And and you know, I I'm not sure how I feel about all of that. Um, you know, as as a parent of young children, it's it's incredibly problematic to see those messages, even if they're in jest. But I also believe that you know, people grow and evolve their sense of humor and who they are as an individual over a decade. Um, and, you know, if you were to bring up some of the, the jokes, if, if, if they were to somehow be documented, the jokes that I made as a, as a teenager or in my early 20s uh, over a decade ago, I, I'd be highly embarrassed, um, you know, of, of the things that I used to say before, you know, I, I grew and evolved. That being said, um, just like the sheer nuts and bolts of this, I've been a bit disappointed with with Gunn's films uh, as of late. I I enjoyed uh, a majority of The Suicide Squad. I mean, it was a marked improvement. Like, the bar was set incredibly low with the Ayer film. Um, I don't think I even got past 20 minutes of that one. It was such a, an atrocity. Um, so The Suicide Squad was fine. Peacemaker just did nothing for me. I know that it has a large following, uh, I think that perhaps, you know, a, a little telling that for me, some of the humor is pretty juvenile. Um, it, it just did not land with me. But um, so I do like I, I don't know what this working relationship is going to be um, with with Saffron. I'm not very familiar with him before this news, so I don't know how involved he's going to be, what that working relationship is going to be. Um, I don't I don't think that like this is going to be like Gunn as like the creative like mastermind of all things DC. I'm I'm hoping that he's just like a facilitator and he will let other people like be, you know, let let other people kind of cook, so to speak. So um, I have I have mixed reactions and feelings to this news. Um DC Warner Brothers, all of it is really behind the eight ball with all of this. But, you know, the the one thing that, that gets me excited is is the thing that brings us here today is is Henry Cavill returning as Superman. And um, so that's what I'm most looking forward to. But uh, I'm taking a very to borrow one of your terms, a very wait and see approach on all of this. I think it's also fair to say um, that. 
I don't think every DC movie needs to be a James Gunn movie, you know, like yeah. that he kind of is ghost directing all of these movies and, and the tone of the entire DC universe, cinematically speaking, is going to be James Gunn. I don't think his approach fits with every character. Um, so if he is willing to let directors step up and kind of do their own thing, that will be probably best. However, I do hope that he is willing to do what he did in the Suicide Squad and even to some extent with, with Peacemaker. And that is kind of dive into the DC library and pluck out some characters that are really fascinating that maybe don't get their due. The fact that they put Starro the Conqueror in in the yeah. Suicide Squad is still one of the most mind-blowing things to me, and I absolutely adored that because Starro is such a fascinating um, villain anyways. Uh, there's so many uh, interesting things that have d- been done with that character in the comics. And so that's the kind of stuff I want to see from DC moving forward. If uh, Marvel has figured out anything, it's that they can take pretty much any character at this point and spin it in a way that it's cinematic gold. And DC has a similarly deep library, and yet we always are only scratching the surface by looking at Batman over and over again, you know? Um, I mean, the Joker is going to have, you know, two movies. That's two more movies than the question has ever had or the Martian Manhunter, you know? So that's at some point we got to divorce ourselves from the, the Batman of it all and look at the larger library of DC and all the really cool characters they have and put some of that up on the screen. And I predict that if they're willing to do that and take some risks, and I'm hoping this is the kind of thing that Gunn will push for because it's something he's good at, um, that we're going to see a, a significantly more success for DC movies in the future. Yeah, I just hope, I th- I hope, like you said, he has the self-awareness because he does great with those obscure things. I'll never forget forget you know we've talked about this a hundred thousand times on this show but you and i seeing that first guardians movie together was really a special moment for me um like i fell in love with a a freaking tree like and and a raccoon like come on uh so i think those are his strengths i don't know i've never really seen him do like um an establishment character he always kind of works in the margins with these obscurities and and that's to his benefit. So I hope he has like the self-awareness to be like, you know what, these are my strengths and other people have other strengths. And so that's what I, you know, maybe we have a system of checks and balances with Saffron figuring into this equation somehow as well to where they kind of bounce off of each other. And, you know, they're like the point guard. They're passing it, you know, to other people. Ah, uh, the sports references. I can't help myself. Right, well, Listen, there's an NFL game going on right now as we're recording because they're in London, but... Um, they're both crappy teams, so I don't really care. But I, I, I really don't either. But that's because <laughs> you know, as is well documented, my relationship with football is literally non-existent. <laughs> Which football, mein Freund? Uh, well, you know, considering that we are in America and people who don't know that football, <laughs> that soccer is actually football, that's a whole other discussion. Let's go ahead and stick with the cavil of things. So I'm very interested to talk about your news story this week. All Chris. right, let's let's strap in because this one I have two pages of script for and it is a deep dive indeed because it's something I deeply deeply care about uh so the nerd world was set ablaze uh as it was revealed that Henry Cavill um the reason we gather here today (laughs) apparently uh who has portrayed Geralt of Rivia in the smash hit series The Witcher for two seasons and is currently shooting a third Uh, would be leaving the show after the third season. His replacement will be Liam Hemsworth, who is perhaps best known for being Chris Hemsworth's brother and Miley Cyrus's ex. Uh, 
Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no shade to that man. I that's all I know about him. Uh, Hunger Games was never for me. It was about as captivating as watching paint dry. I think Jennifer Lawrence is the 2010s like much ado about nothing actress. Um, I say this as a very burnt out X-Men fan when it comes to the cinematic, you know, aspect of my fandom. Uh, what she did with the role of Mystique is, is a travesty. Uh, she was just there for the check and everybody knew it, including her. Yikes. Uh, so none of that hunger games. I was like, that was, that was all the rage, all those post-apocalyptic du jour things when those books came out and i was just like this again we had divergent we had hunger games everybody was in the post-apocalypse and now we really are in the post-apocalypse so it's really not that interesting i digress just a little but it's okay so cavill's statement on instagram reads as follows uh quote some news from the continent my journey as Geralt of Rivia has been filled with both monsters and adventures, and alas, I will be laying down my medallion and my swords for season four. In my stead, the fantastic Mr. Liam Hemsworth will be taking up the mantle of the White Wolf. As with the greatest of literary characters, I pass the torch with reverence for the time spent embodying Geralt and enthusiasm to see Liam's take on this most fascinating and nuanced of men. Liam, good sir, this character was such a wonderful depth, has such a wonderful depth to him. Enjoy diving in and seeing what you can find, end quote. While many are surmising that this is a direct result and cost for Cavill recommitting to the role of Superman, there may be deeper machinations at work with the Superman news serving as a convenient off-ramp for Cavill. Paul Tossi posits a really interesting piece for Forbes, detailing how passionate Cavill has always been about the role of Geralt and the Witcher property as a whole. And let's be honest, all of nerddom. The dude like is a big time nerd and uh, such a great ambassador for all of us. <clears throat> it was previously reported that Cavill wanted to stay true to the book version of the character, while certain members of the creative team behind the series felt otherwise, to say the least. Bo DeMeo, a former producer on the show and currently the showrunner for X-Men uh, 97, took a break from hilariously misunderstanding the character of Cyclops to share his experience on the set of The Witcher. Quote, I've been on a show, namely Witcher, where some of the writers were not or actively disliked the books and games, even actively mocking the source material. It's a recipe for disaster and bad morale. Fandom as a litmus test checks egos and makes all the long nights worth it. You have to respect the work before you're allowed to add to its legacy. End quote. Irony, thy name is DeMeo. My radical mutant agenda aside, Cavill also said previously in an interview, quote, as far as the preparation goes coming into this, I wanted the character to have a closer relationship to the character in the books. I wanted him to be more book accurate. And so it has so it was more to do with making sure and campaigning for him to sound more intellectual, more philosophical, and to have an emotional side as well, rather than just be a grumpy snowman. Every day I was pushing this stuff as far as prep goes. At the present, he can be a little uncommunicative, and I'm obviously working on that, end quote. For us Witcher fans who have either played the games or read the books, or both will know how true Cavill's words ring true. 
No matter the reasoning, all I know is that I'm deeply saddened. I feel like the Thanos meme with baby Gamora inside the soul gem. We got Superman back, but it cost us everything, Dave. Yeah, so I, um, this, this one is deeply depressing to me in a number of ways because I'm such a huge fan of the Witcher franchise, a bigger fan of Superman by far. Um, and, and uh, you know, we texted a little bit about this and I mentioned that I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure that the Witcher series is going to recover from this, that, you know, if given the choice, we could probably found a new Superman, but I think it's going to be much, much tougher to step into Henry Cavill's shoes when it comes to Geralt. And that is because of exactly, you know, some of the stuff you just talked about, particularly that it seems that, um, that Cavill has been kind of pushing the writer's room on The Witcher uh, in into a little bit more of a, a more accurate portrayal of the character. And if you remove that, uh, what kind of weird divergent excesses are we going to end up with from a writer's room that is adapting source material that they actually don't seem to like or appreciate? So yeah, I'm troubled by this um, uh, big time. Uh, I'm, I don't think it's, you know, I don't know. Is like Liam Hemsworth just a name that they wanted to get or did he audition and actually did a decent job as Geralt? You know, that, that that's another question. It's, you know, it would almost feel more like, you know, maybe find an unknown or something um, because, you know, the comparisons are going to be. Uh, the comparisons are going to be made, and I don't know if if Hemsworth can can live up to what Cavill has been trying to do with the role. Now, Cavill is right that uh, Geralt in the TV show is different from Geralt in the books, um, and yeah, Geralt is a little bit more of a talker and and sort of an armchair philosopher, and mm-hmm. he, he has you know his own views about how the world functions or should function, and you know a lot of this depth has been basically replaced on the TV show with grunting. Um, mm, it works. I mean, for the context of the oh, show, yeah, for sure. But I, th- but I think it also works in part because a lot of the people watching the show are familiar with the Geralt of the books and of the games. They know that the dude has an introspective side, um, and and so they kind of read into those grunts a little bit. You know, I, I think that's probably part of what's happening here. It's the traditional. It's the traditional, like. book adaptation where you don't see the thought process behind it and and so like a grunt or an f-bomb like a disgruntled f-bomb that you know has been memefied you know you know big time fans of the series can read so much into that that's exactly right and you know i do not want to belittle the show in any way shape or form i've nerd commended season two and season one both and i'm a big fan of the show i'm also an equally big fan of the book and a very big fan of how how, what cavill has brought to the role so i think if you take an influence out that appreciates the books which which i do as well um and the performance that is very good and you kind of put a different x factor in there into the middle of of a show as it proceeds I think we're in trouble. And you and I have, you know, discussed before that one of the big things that we didn't like about the show is how it makes such an effort to always keep Yennefer and Geralt separate yes. from each other. When, you know, in so much of the stories, um, you know, so much hinges on on the moments when they're actually together. You know what I mean? And they spend a significant amount of time together. But in the show, it always seems like they're running, you know, parallel um storylines and then their storylines touch for a moment in the season finale and then they separate out again for it's, most it's, of the season. It's what we saw with Obi-Wan and, and Anakin. Like this this relationship is supposed to be heavily important. Why in the name of whatever God you pray to, 
do we not have them together then? And I think it's fair to say that the show has done a really good job of, you know, increasing the importance of female characters yes. and, and giving them significant storylines. And I am for all of that. But I will say that one of the things that is sorely lacking is a strong establishment of the relationship between Yennefer and Geralt. They don't get to really spend any time together. And I keep waiting for the show to rectify this. But it's almost, it, it feels almost as if the writers perhaps are a little bit embarrassed of those two as a couple, or they don't think they work as a couple, or they don't want to put them together. Um, but they're constantly working really overtime to keep them apart on the show. And that is something that I think is, is, a, is a big miss for me. And I don't know if that's going to get corrected, given what we now know about the writer's room not appreciating the source material. So am I glad that Cavill is back as, as Superman? Very much so. He's, I think he's a good Superman, and, I, and I'm waiting for him to have, to have the opportunity to be in a movie that really defines a generation, similar to what you know Christopher Reeve got as an opportunity to really define Superman for a whole generation. Yes. Cavill has not had that chance yet, and no. I want him to have that chance. I think he has that ability. Um but I think that I think we might I think we might lose The Witcher, man. I I don't know if they're going to be able to keep a quality show running without him as a, a, a his performance and and his influence, especially behind the scenes of trying to keep you know a balance going and, and including some more book accurate things. So I think we might have lost The Witcher, man. Do you know I I'm going to take it a step further because. I think the world of Anya Chalotra and in the role of Yennefer, I think she's pitch perfect. Um, but not only am I saddened by that chemistry and that even even the bits that we've had between those two have been magnificent. But then, you know, we're starved for it. I'm also deeply disheartened by... Um, you know, the chemistry that he has with Anna Schaefer. And if you've read the books of, of you know, you or, or play the games, you know the deep, complicated love triangle that you have between Geralt and Triss and Yennefer and, like, the back and forth of it all. But I think for me, the thing that makes me the most sad is how perfect Cavill, uh, Cavill and Freya Allen were together. Um, and that, you know, that found father role, like the, the grumpy dad, like it was such a beautiful thing and far and away my favorite thing about season two. And to, to you know, we still have season three. That's what I keep telling myself, too. But like to know that the end is in sight, it's deeply, deeply sad because I love Siri. Um, and I know that we've talked about the um, was it the blood of elves? where it's just like the, the Siri training montage and yes. you would kind of fallen off. It wasn't your vibe, but like, I love that. I love, I love Siri. I love her independence. Um, the wild hunt is a really fun game because you shift back and forth narratively with Geralt and Siri. So seeing that kind of come to life in season two was just chef's kiss for me. And to know that the end is in sight is deeply saddening for me. Now I'm just going to yeah. go read all the books again. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated sensation to get you know a Superman back that you really want in the role, and then you know this happens uh, to The Witcher. It's it's regrettable, but you know there's only so many hours in the day, and Cavill I think had to make a choice. Um, and if the behind the scenes environment already wasn't very good because 
of, of this back and forth between him and the writers about, you know, the source, source material, then I cannot blame him for bowing out. All right, that wraps up Nerd News uh, for this week. When we come back, our Byward Big Talk, uh, we're making Man of Steel 2 and what we'd like to see in this sequel. Stick around. All right, we're nothing if not creatures of habit. So welcome again to our... And our segments of three. So we each have three things on our wish list for what we want to see out of the Man of Steel sequel. We are super excited to see Henry Cavill return to the role of Superman. But these are the things that we want to see. We each have three. What am I doing? Uh, Anyways, Dave, first up on your wish list. Um, This is the least surprising thing I've seen all week. Well, I mean, you know, I've been pretty consistent about uh, preaching the gospel of Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter. Um, we've we've talked a lot on here, on and off, about my feelings on Superman and my strong love for the character and my, my history and connection and, and how relatable I find the character. Um, but one of the things that is missing sorely so far from Cavill's Superman is a clear distinction between Clark Kent and Superman, uh, besides a pair of glasses. I think... Uh, one of the things that the best comic book adaptations of the character have always gotten, and one of the things that really shown in the Chris Reeves uh, adaptation, is simply um, a strong distinction between Clark Kent and Superman. Superman thus put on a disguise that goes beyond um, glasses, you know? This is uh, body posture. This is changing the pitch of his voice. This is you know, dressing in baggy clothes to hide his muscles, you know, all all this kind of stuff is baked into the character, right? And and it's sorely missing. And so it becomes a little unbelievable when you have people all around him that have seen, you know, Perry White, for example, that have seen Superman and have seen Clark Kent and like the glasses aren't fooling anybody, dude. And that's because the glasses, as far as the character are concerned, were never supposed to fool everybody, dude. It was always change of mannerism, change of dress, change of voice, you know, even hunching over a little bit to look shorter. All of those things have popped up in time and time again in the comic books. I think one of the ones that has done it the best, artistically speaking, is probably in recent memory, Frank Quietly on All-Star Superman. That just showed a fantastic contrast between the two. And this is like an actor's meal. You know what I mean? Like, like th- this is great. This is like steak and potatoes for an actor because you're playing one character playing two different versions of himself. Like this is actor's gold and it would give Cavill a real chance to shine, to put on this mild mannered air as Clark Kent, and then, you know, go full Superman. Like that transformation, you see it over and over again on social media of uh, Chris Reeves' Superman when he's talking to Lois, and suddenly he straightens up and takes his glasses off, and it's like he completely transforms, you know? Um, and that, I think Cavill can do that, man. And and look, I know what people are going to hurl at me right now. They're like, oh, uh, Clark Kent doesn't need to be some goofy guy who says swell and falls over himself constantly. And I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that you need to draw some clear distinctions between the characters um, to make it believable that people would not recognize him. And, and I think that there is something fun 
uh, about Clark Kent mild mannered reporter. There is fun to be had there with how he relates to people and how they relate to him. And then when he's Superman, how they relate to him in a different way. Um, more on that later. Uh, so to me, this is this is essential to the character, and I think it's time that Cavill gets a chance to to actually be a version of Clark Kent because all he's been acting so far as is Superman. Even when the glasses come on, he's still the same dude. There is no distinction. So yeah, I, I would like Clark Kent, mild mannered reporter, Chris. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about potentially moving forward is because you have like such a nerd like Cavill in the role and it feels like he's been chained by you know people different people's vision of the character and and kind of the agenda that they have um I'm trying to avoid the s word for this entire episode wish me luck <laughs> I'm, I'm with you okay we'll we'll, we'll make it we want to stay positive we want to stay positive moving forward but anyways so i think that this is perfect we just got done talking about it with with the Geralt part of you know it's the it's the jekyll and the hyde that really even in my limited experience with with the character of superman reading actual comics you know it's the jekyll and the hyde part of all of it um and i'm going to I'm going to deep dive this in next week's nerd commendation um, because I'm a completionist and I'm almost done with the entire series and you know me, but anyways, um, I just, I just love that, that switching back and forth. And I, you know, I sent you that clip the other day uh, that you mentioned of, of Chris Reeve and it's just, it's perfect. And, and that's something that I know in my heart that Cavill not only can pull off, but can pull it off to the nth degree. And I'm super excited to see that because, you know, the old joke is like, it's the pair of glasses. It's the spit girl. But when you remove all nuance from the conversation, when you remove all of the Clarkisms of everything, then of course it's not a convincing disguise. So that's why you have to let him be Clark. Absolutely, man. Uh, it's, it's totally just essential to the character. All right, Chris, what is the first thing that you are hoping for in the new Superman movie? Alliteration has always been and forever shall remain my favorite literary device. So today we're going to liberate Lois Lane. For the nice. love of whatever God you pray to, let that woman at least speak. I think the the greatest detriment that we have seen, um, I'm not sure how I feel about Amy Adams in the role. I like the chemistry, the little bits that we've got to see between the two of them. Um, I don't care about hair color. Who literally who cares um, about hair color when it comes to a white actress? I mean, like it's still a white girl. You're going to be fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, like, just let her be Lois. There is nothing that I have seen in in the previous iterations of Amy Adams as Lois Lane, I'm being really creative with my word choices, um, that that have really made her feel like Lois Lane. And I think for for everything, bring Bitsy Tulloch as a creative consultant um, because she is kick-ass and taking names on what I've seen of Superman. Uh, Adventures of Superman and Lois. Is that the right one? I always get the two mixed up. Is that the one? It's it's Superman and Lois. Superman and Lois. Okay. So I've only seen a couple episodes, but that's enough to win me over because I have 8,642 things that I'm watching right now. Um, 
I'm still trying to listen to y'all's gospel about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but things are dire as it stands right now in season one. That being said, I need Lois Lane. Uh, you and I both are rabid supporters of strong female characters. I love the idea of the non-powered female counterparts to the super-powered male counterpart. That's why we love MJ being the real driving force in that relationship. We love them wearing the pants, and we really, really need that in this sequel. Lois Lane is probably my all-time favorite comic book character, and anytime she gets the spotlight, when she gets a chance to have her own series, especially in the modern age, it's always just such a delight. She, to me, is the blueprint um, of having a love interest that has agency, you know yes um, sure even even in the even in the old comic books sure did she get rescued a lot did she get kidnapped a lot all all of the above absolutely did she in the 50s have an unhealthy obsession with trying to get superman to marry her y- yes sir she sure did but even through all of that even in those old books she's a reporter she's out to get the story she has agency you know she's out there doing her own thing she is not dependent on uh, another character to accomplish stuff. She accomplishes things constantly, right? She is one of the most accomplished journalists in in the country in the comic books, and so her going out there and being, you know, this true partner to to Clark Kent and Superman, you know, being out there and 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 breaking stories, you know, and 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 trying to fight the good fight in her own way, just like Superman does to try to make the world a better and safer place. That to me is the blueprint of what a great superhero love interest is. You know, a character that works towards the same goal as the hero, just in their own way. It doesn't get better than Lois Lane. And that has not been very well represented on the screen. I mean, there's been, you know, some, a little bit of attempts in previous, um, you know, movies featuring Amy Adams as Lois Lane. Now I'm I'm gonna go ahead and come out as a huge Amy Adams fan. Um, I, I think she's absolutely fantastic, uh, and you know a lot of projects that I've seen her in, she just rocks my socks off. Um, that that Disney movie um, Enchanted from uh, several years ago, where she plays a Disney princess that like leaves the animated world and comes into the real world, she played that role with so much energy that you just know that this subdued Lois Lane is is not the best she can do. She did, um, in one of the Night at the Museum uh, sequels, she played um, Amelia Earhart, Come to Life, yes, in, in one of the museums. Great performance. Yes, and that's that spunk that she had in that performance, that's Lois Lane all over. Like, you could feel... The, the Lois Lane just dripping off of her, which is why when she was cast as Lois Lane, I was like, hey, this is, this is a really good choice, you know? Um, and then she does the dramatic really, really well. There was a science fiction movie, The Name Escapes Me Now, that she did a, a few years back. That was one of the most emotional journeys, period, for a science fiction movie, and I felt every minute of it. She's just a fantastic actress. So I know there's been a lot arrival. of... Arrival. Like, recut. Arrival. Yeah, Arrival, that's the one. Um we need to recast Lois Lane has been, you know, this big cry right now. And I'm not necessarily interested in that. I mean, there are people that I would have loved to see in, in the role. I was a big um, advocate of somebody like uh, Rachel McAdams giving the role a shot because she does that kind of spunk really well. And I think, you know, there's been several people suggesting uh, Felicity Jones 
as a really good uh, choice for Lois Lane character. And I think she could probably pull that off too. But I don't think we need to recast Amy Adams here. What we need to do is much like what you know the problem is with Henry Cavill Superman is we, we need to do some good writing for, the, for this character. We need to get to the essence and the core of this character and then try to represent that on the big screen. And I think that's been sorely lacking so far for Amy Adams' version. So if you give her the proper writing, I think she can shine just as brightly as, as Betsy Tullock is right now on TV. Um, she just needs to write material. All right. I'm really, really excited to talk about the second thing on your wish list, Dave. Oh, you are. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's it's the Joker syndrome, I think. You know, when you have Batman, we always default to the same villains over and over again. Um, and I think that happens with Superman to a large extent, too. The things that you constantly are getting in animation and live action is Lex Luthor. Um, and, and you get Zod. And, and that's like the go-to stuff. And even if you look at the Chris Reeves movies, what have we gotten besides Luther and Zod? Nuclear Man? <laughs> I mean, uh, no offense, guys, but uh, that, that was pretty rough. So w- when we're talking about villains, what it's we're, we're, it's time to do something different. We need a non-Kryptonian, non-Lex Luthor villain. Now, can you have a Lex Luthor guest appearance or something? Sure, you can. I have a suggestion about that, by the way. We'll talk about that later. But when it comes to villains, like you need to start doing something a little different, you know? And I'm not saying even uh, it needs to be something small scale like a like a bizarro um, or or a parasite, something distinctively earthbound. You can go big and epic, you know? I mean, Brainiac is right there, guys. You know, Brainiac I'll is right ne- there. I'll never shut up about it. I will never. I know that I know the name comes across as silly these days, but have you seen some of the crap that Marvel has put up on the screen? A talking tree. You don't think we can handle a guy called Brainiac? Um, but th- but then there's you know one that's talked about a lot less is is Mongol, and I think Mongol is a fantastic villain. You know you have basically space Hitler that has you know like control over War World, this this you know totally oppressive place. And, you know, just recently they did a big storyline of Superman basically going to War World, being enslaved and trying to, like, you know, lead an uprising against Mongol and free all the people there. And it's it's a fantastic storyline. You know, you can do things with characters. There are so many interesting Superman villains that could, you know, you could do interesting things with. Um, so let's back off on the Lex Luthor thing. Let's back up on the on the Kryptonian stuff. And let's just, you know dive into his rogues gallery it's not quite as deep as batman's but it's pretty deep i mean there are a lot of very iconic villains you know you got you know metallo you got you know you got toy man there's all sorts of interesting prankster right i mean there's all sorts of interesting villains that he has that we could play around with that don't need to be lex luther or stinking zod again let's do something different this time it reminds me of Star Wars because everything and my greatest frustration and what I love about Andor is it finally moves to another freaking planet is is Star Wars has been so narrow minded in this expansive universe and galaxy and everything happens on three planets. Um, and so, you know, coming in as a casual Superman observer and fan and now into, you know, basically over the history of our show. Um, you've converted me into a Superman fan. And then to see the only iterations on screen, it it feels so reductive and it feels so limited and it feels so stagnant. So I'm desperate. I'm desperate to see it. And I will never shut up about Brainiac. I think Injustice 2 
um, and Brainiac taking over the world and and all of that, you know, that everything that it entails with that storyline was some of the best storylines that I've seen in a DC adjacent story. So I absolutely loved it and I'm dying to see it on the big screen. Yeah, I think, you know, there was actually just um, uh, a comic book miniseries called Superman 1978, right? Yes. And it basically, yeah. yeah, Have you read that? Uh, No, but I have seen the covers and it's on my to read list. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you, like, I read the thing. It's like a it's like a six-issue miniseries, and it postulates basically that this is like a sequel to the Chris Reeve Superman movies. What if, you know, they would have done Brainiac in the Chris Reeve Superman movies? It's basically the, the pitch. And it's 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 pitch perfect. It does everything right. It is probably one of my favorite Superman comics that I've seen in recent years. Um, it's right up there with something like Superman smashes the clan. You know, it has a distinctive tone. It does interesting things with the characters. It's, it's fantastic. And that, you know, you know, take the Chris Reeves stuff out of it. That is the blueprint. Something like that would be absolutely amazing. Why can't we do that? All right, Chris. So what is your second wish for a new Superman movie? And I will say that this would have been the first thing on my list if you had not dipsed it. <laughs> uh, I'm an overachiever. What can I say? Uh, allow Superman to, oddly enough, be Superman. Um, I think part of the reason that, you know, at the onset of this show, I was kind of ambival- ambivalent or agnostic about Superman as an idea is because the you know, the recent iterations that I'd seen of him didn't really inspire much. Um, you have a really beautiful concept of that symbol, not meaning S, but standing for hope. But then I'm not coming away hopeful. Um, and now that I've, you know, read comics and I've seen postings even on social media, there is so much about Superman that is aspirational. Also, our conversations, I don't want to discredit those. There is so much about Superman, the ethos surrounding him that is that is so hopeful and so aspirational. And I think my biggest takeaway of, you know, the previous iterations on screen is it's depressing. It's saddening Um, down to the color scheme of everything. It does not uplift me. Um, It makes me just like sad about the current state of the world and we just have to exist in it. Um, I am not a fan of grit for grit's sake. I like sugar or cheese in my grits. I like any kind of flavor at all in my grits. So um, I am hoping that we can move away for the grit for grit's sake on all superhero adjacent iterations. Um, I think even someone, uh, a character like Daredevil, we get much more nuance to that character, even though it's a very gritty and realistic world. Um, I think we still get a lot of human elements in that show or superhuman elements, if you will. Um, so I just need Superman to be Superman. Even the old stuff from like the golden age where you have Superman talking to a diverse group of kids saying, you know, we accept each other. We love each other. And this is the right thing to do. Even those golden age era moments had it right. And I have yet to see that, uh, in recent uh, interpretations of the character. And this right there is the key. Um, and one where I'm going to have to really, really restrain myself, you know, uh, you see a lot online about how Superman, you know, is is unrelatable and fans of the most recent Superman movies, they kind of tout that this is the stuff 
that this is the stuff that finally made him relatable, this dour, you know, almost nihilistic character, um, devoid of, of, of hope. And that, that to me, uh, discounts the core of the character. So what are the big criticisms, you know, that say that Superman is unrelatable? Well, the first thing that they always say is that his, his morality is boring because that means that he has no no internal conflict. You know, he's not... Um, he he knows right from wrong, and because of that, he, he's never questioning whether what he's doing is right or wrong. Um, and to that, I say, so you can have conflict without the main character having to sit in a corner questioning every decision he makes. And even then, there are things that he can question that don't necessarily go against the core of his morality. Um, that's just that that's an excuse of a lazy writer to say that you can't come up with conflict because Superman's morality. Look, to me, Superman is as much aspirational as anything else, right? Which is why I never appreciated the approach of, of showing him like some kind of God figure or something or making Christ allegories with him. Because to me, the best interpretation of the character is that Superman is Clark Kent. He's just a kid from the Midwest who was raised by some deeply moral people and taught right from wrong. And he happens to, ha- to have these powers and he goes out into the, into the world to do the best that he can. And what that says to us is we don't have superpowers, but if we have a strong moral center, we too can go out into the world and according to our ability, do the best that we can to make the world a better place. So, I, you know, when I say that, you know, I want to be like Superman, that doesn't mean that I think that I'm going to be able to fly through the sky or shoot laser beams from my eyes. It means that I want to be that moral individual that goes on to, out into the world and tries to make a difference. The other thing that people are constantly saying about Superman that needs to be changed is his power level, because his power level makes him unrelatable. He's just too powerful, and therefore there can't be any real conflict because there's nobody stronger than him, than him to beat the snot out of him. Um, to that I say, uh, your action scenes are fine and all, and you can have interesting action scenes. There are plenty of characters that you know are as powerful as Superman. But the real conflict should be emotional, I think, when you're dealing with a character like Superman. You know, there's a great, great uh, line in in Superman, the movie with Chris Reeves, um, when, you know, Jonathan Kent dies, and he says, all this power, and I couldn't save him. This is a a core, you know, conflict with Superman. He can't do everything, even with all his powers. He can't be everywhere. He can't save everybody. And that is definitely something that deeply troubles him, right? This is a moment of introspection. How does a character like this deal with the fact that he can't save everybody, right? So there are different ins to the character that don't just need, we need to depower him, right? I think Grant Morrison said it really well when he said that Thank you so much for the reminder. This is what you get when you've been a comic book reader for 30 years. Um, They said it best uh, when they said, listen, Superman, and I'm wildly paraphrasing, Superman has all the same problems as us. They're just at a different scale. Right, like when, when when Superman goes and walks his dog Crypto, he might be walking him on the moon or past Saturn or something. But we still relate to the basic idea of having a dog that you love, and you go walk your dog, right? So it's a matter of scale. You still find the relatability in the character. You just change the scale to something larger and more epic. And and so, yeah, I don't think Superman needs to be changed. You know, 
I think Superman just needs to be Superman. Just like you said, let Superman be Superman on the big screen. He does not have to be nihilistic. He can be hopeful and moral and good. And maybe in this day and age, that's something that we need. Maybe we need a character to be up on the big screen and say, it is okay to be morally good to be bright, to be hopeful, to look towards the future and try to work towards a better future. I think we need this. And so, yeah, let Superman be Superman, Chris. I think um, for me, one of the the reasons that it was easy to convert me into a Superman fan, you didn't really have to try that hard, um, was the obvious you know, comparisons that I can draw to a character like Peter Parker, who have I, I've grown up being a super rabid fan of, you know, since that Spider-Man, the animated series in the nineties, I was, I was probably five or six years old when that came out. And I immediately identified with the character because I was a dweeb, even though in that animated series, they make him this muscly bound um, college student. So that part I didn't relate to, but you know, when I dove deeper into the character, you know, one of the things I immediately attached to was the age old quote of with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And for heaven's sake, if if we can get, you know, faithful adaptations of Peter Parker on screen, why in the world can't we get it with Clark Kent? They're not all that different. Just trade in Forest Hills, Queens for the middle of nowhere, Kansas. You know, as a Midwestern kid, no disrespect. I mean, like, I get it. I'm from small town, Minnesota, like or we are the same. Um, so it is not that difficult to pull off. Um, I said this before, um, no shade to anybody who enjoys things like the boys or, or things of that ilk. Um, it's just personally not for me. And if you have tunnel vision and you think that the only interpretation of superpowered individuals and the only realistic interpretation of superheroes is that they're actually assholes, you're just an asshole. People are good. There are good people. I know that in today's day and age, it is difficult to see the light and to see the optimism, but that maybe it's because we've overcorrected to the point where the representations of characters we see in media are depressing and are so down and out and pessimistic with everything about the world that maybe it's time to try and be positive for a change because I live in the world. I see how depressing and upsetting it can be. And yet I decide to be optimistic and try to find the positive aspects of life. I surround my, myself with like-minded individuals who choose to be good and make good choices that help other people. So if you're surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals who think everything is awful and we're all cruising towards uh, the apocalypse then maybe you should excuse yourself from that group and try to think positive thoughts. I mean, if you really just think that it is so astronomical and so out of touch that people try to do good things, I don't know what to tell you. There's been a wonderful clip making the rounds recently as well from um, an interview with Christopher Reeve around the time of, of him being Superman. And, um, 
you know, he says a lot of similar stuff. He's, you know, they ask him, you know, what is Superman? And he says, well, Superman's a friend. And, and in this day and age, you know, with things the way they are, isn't that what we all need? You know, don't we all need, you know, a friend? Don't we, don't we need to be friends to each other? You know, and I think I think that that's a good way to put it. So let let Superman not just be the guy who shows up and punches the snot out of somebody, but also a friend, because that's really what Superman is. All right, uh, Dave, I'm really interested to dive into your last point, because the only time I've seen him on screen, he was getting nerfed in the desert somewhere. Don't start that 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 did not happen. OK, Um I think we need Jimmy Olsen. I think it's time that that this Superman gets his Jimmy. Um, and I think this is one of the great misunderstood characters um, in the modern age, and one that some comic fans get, especially if they get the history of Superman, but many, many writers even today don't get. Superman is incredibly powerful, um, and Superman struggles sometimes to relate. Um, and then... You know, he comes across this kid who is working as a photographer uh, at the Daily Planet, and they strike up a friendship. And that's really what Jimmy is. Jimmy is um, Superman's best friend. And and Superman, you know, who is a friend to all, <laughs> doesn't really have a lot of friends, believe it or not. I mean, we, we get a good, decent relationship with somebody like Batman in the comic books. But when it comes right down to it, Superman's best friend is Jimmy Olsen. And what's really cool about Jimmy Olsen as a character is that he is a friend to Superman and a friend to Clark Kent, and he treats them no different. Even Lois Lane, you know, before she is let in on his secret, treats Clark and Superman differently. Everybody treats Clark and Superman differently, except for Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy Olsen doesn't make a difference between the two. He does not know Clark's secret, and he makes no difference between the two. Jimmy is an incredibly important character to Superman. Superman needs a friend. And it is nice for Superman to have a sounding board that is not a love interest, right? Somebody that he talks to. Somebody who gets himself in trouble in his own right. And, you know, even that stupid signal watch that he uses to get Superman to come and save his butt is is iconic and awesome. Um, And I think... If you give Superman the opportunity um, to to have that kind of friendship on screen, which is, you know, yes, Jimmy is younger than him. They're not contemporaries. And yes, Superman is a little bit of a, almost like a, a father figure towards Jimmy. But at the same time, this is not a one-way street. And, and you know, Clark gets all sorts of benefits from having this kind of friend as well. I think that is an important thing to put up on the screen, you know? So I, I want Jimmy Olsen. I want I want the real Jimmy Olsen, not you know some CIA guy who gets shot. I want the real Jimmy Olsen on the big screen. Um, and and I wanted to for once. Even the Chris Reeves movies didn't really do this. I wanted for once to actually show the friendship that exists, the relationship that exists between between Superman and Jimmy. I think uh, in the comic books, it's probably one of Superman's most important relationships. I'm really interested because I haven't seen I've seen precious little of it. And so I'm I'm absolutely here for it. There's not a whole lot that I can add because I'm so inexperienced with it. I mean, like we've we've gotten precious little of that. So I'm I'm all I'm all here for it. And it's sad to say that one of the few 
adaptations that actually try to do a little bit something with that is you know is you know the 90s show believe it or not uh, and i'm not the biggest fan of dean kane these days um on a on a personal level but in in uh superman the new adventures of lois and clark or lois and clark the new adventures of superman is what it was called actually that's the full title which still gave me one of my all-time favorite lois lanes and terry hatcher um they actually did try to build a relationship over the course of that TV show between between Jimmy and, and Superman. And although it wasn't perfect, it was probably the best attempt that I have seen made to, to capture uh, the relationship between those two characters. So if they would do that on the big screen, I think that would offer something unique that uh, the general audience probably hasn't really seen before. All right, that brings us, uh, Chris, to your final suggestion for the new Superman movie? Well, I, um, you know, I'm very limited in my Superman reading experience. Um, Everything that I have read Superman related has come from uh, this show and our homework assignments for one another or preps for episodes. Um, But far and away, the most influential thing, the most life-changing piece that I read was All-Star Superman. Uh, by Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley. And so I think maybe this is a just correction for the Jeff Johns universe that we just got through and having only one creative vision. I would like to have Grant Morrison uh, brought on at, at least as a consultant. And this is something that I've been rabidly advocating for for quite some time is respect for the source material as as we said in our in our news segment um not only that but to bring those people that have done it and done it well and have them on to help tell these stories and so we can get faithful adaptations so we can get boiled down to the heart of these characters and uh, bring Grant Morrison on bring Mark Wade on um, bring these people who truly understand these characters. They've spent years with these characters um, to to bring them on and and have more you know minds in in the creative process. And and we have I think I think collaboration of 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 this ilk is is only going to be beneficial. So so bring on comic book writers. Grant Morrison, they are the first one that comes to my mind uh, with regards to Superman and and have them on to help make this film. I think another one who really essentially gets the character is probably somebody like Mark Wade. Um, still, still, even today, writing really, really good Superman stuff. They got a world's, uh, Batman and Superman World's Finest book right now. Um, it's Mark Wade and, and Dan Mora and God is Dan Mora knocking it out of the park. I feel a nerd commendation coming on. Um, but yeah, when it comes to, when it comes to Morrison, they are to me the gold standard. Um, you know, to kind of go back to my history with the character, you know, I was a big fan of, of, of the Chris Reeves movies as a kid, but there weren't a lot of comic books floating around in, in Germany at the time. And then, you know, Batman, the animated series came out, which, you know, led to a German publisher, uh, you know, printing the um, the tie-in comic book, and that was so successful, they started doing uh, the regular Batman comic book, and then the regular ongoing Superman comic book, and they basically started um, they started post zero hour, um, 
And then, you know, and I, I was right there. This is long-haired Superman, by the way. It was not a mullet. I know a lot of people like to say it was a mullet. It was not a mullet. Dude just had long hair. Let's let's back off on the whole mullet stuff. That's just name-calling. Um, but, you know, then there was Morrison, and, and, and they launched, you know, the, the new Justice League comic book, JLA. And that to me, drove home how awesome Superman is. Now, you and I have talked about how weird it was when Superman went Crayola. Yes. With that yeah, electric, with energy blue, powers. electric blue, yeah. Yeah, so so here's the joke. So Morrison does their first storyline in Justice League, right, in JLA, and then gets saddled with all sorts of weird crap that is happening in the other comic books at the time. And so they have to adjust to, for example, Crayola Superman. And and what does Morrison do immediately, immediately makes that version of Superman incredibly cool. Immediately. Like if you if you want to be a true believer of electric blue Superman, you gotta just read Morrison's Justice League. Like at one point Superman is literally wrestling an angel. You know, I mean, he's just the absolute coolest. Morrison has an understanding for the things about Superman's powers that are cool, but more importantly, the things about his personality that are cool. And so Morrison as some kind of consultant, I would totally buy into that. All right. So we're going to pivot before we transition to nerd commendations, because we had so much fun with this, um, with our Fantastic Four fix. We're going to fan cast any potential roles. So Dave, who is your first fan cast? So I'm just going to go ahead and and say the least surprising thing you've probably ever heard, which is simply that I absolutely find uh, Lex Luthor's portrayal in the most recent cinematic movies to be um, misguided at best. I, I really, really dislike it. Um, and I think there's a very, very easy fix for that. Um, although I advocate for a different villain than Lex Luthor in the next movie, I think that even in like sort of a secondary villain role or a guest spot, we can fix the problem and give uh, Henry Cavill Superman a real Lex Luthor. And that is just, let's just say that uh, the Lex Luthor that he's been dealing with is Lex Luthor Jr. Period. Or as Mark Waite calls him, Lenny Luthor, which I think is absolutely hilarious. (laughs) But... Let's go ahead and just say that's Lex Luthor Jr. And the actual Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor Sr., comes like out of the woodworks, he, you know, and is like, dude, you've been messing with my kid, you know? And then we have a good basis for having a rivalry between Superman and the real Lex Luthor. Um, and I really think this would be interesting. I've advocated for him to actually play Superman in the past, but I think John Hamm would make a really interesting Lex Luthor. I'm thinking, you know, Mad Men sort of John Hamm, you know, that performance that he delivered in that movie, you know, the the high-powered, you know, executive, the, uh, you know, kind of um, outbursts underneath the surface. There's just something bubbling there, like that kind of stuff. John Hamm is really good at. You shave that man's head and put him in a suit. I think we have a decent Lex Luthor on our hands. I I love Mad Men, one of my favorite series um, of all time. And John Hamm was, you know, absolutely spectacular in that role. And it makes so much sense because Jesse Eisenberg gives me rampant, you know, petulant, spoiled, affluent child. So that makes all the sense in the world and I'm here for this. Yeah, yeah, he's he's not a self-made, you know, billionaire. He got like seed money from his daddy and <laughs> and he and he spent and it went, all he spent it all on a bad wig job. So 
<laughs> there you go. I mean, it ma it makes sense, right? Yeah, I really I really like the idea of just saying that that is Lex Luthor Jr. and bringing you know the quote unquote real Lex Luthor out of the woodworks. Um, and I think John Hamm would make a, a really good Lex Luthor. All right, Chris, what is your first sort of uh, um, fan cast for a future movie? I don't know much about Bizarro, but my spirit just tells me that Andy Serkis would be perfect for the role because what can't this man do? Uh, spoiler alert for Andor, but he's back in Star Wars and it's great. Um, I I love Andy Serkis. I mean, he's done everything from Gollum to Star Wars to, to everything. Uh, you know, he's freaking planet of the apes so let andy circus be bizarro andy circus can be anything now obviously bizarro would have to be one of those digital creations because he is supposed to look like you know uh like superman right he's a clone gone wrong but um who, but who yeah, better I yeah i mean like that's really literally cool. most of his work history you know yeah yeah exactly so i think that would actually that's actually really really cool casting all right so you advocated for this character being used before but now you have a casting for it yeah, I think, you know, Mongol is just a fascinating character and one of, uh, I think, one of Superman's best villains, actually. One that's sometimes um, underutilized. But you know, he's also the villain in one of the best Superman stories ever. Um, and that's uh, for the man who has everything, which is just a masterclass. Um, so I'm a, bi a big fan of Mongol. And I think Javier Bardem would be an absolute shoe-in in this role. Would be absolutely fantastic to play Mongol. Um the, the intensity that Bardem brings to so many of his roles would be just spot on for, for this, like, basically space dictator, you know? Like, I'd be all for it. I love Bardem. I mean, No Country for Old Men was, like, all people wanted to talk about in the aughts, and for good reason, um, based on his performance. But then also, um, he had a great performance in uh, Skyfall. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a absolutely big, 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 big fan of his work. And I'd love to see him in a comic book movie, period. All right, what do you have for your next fan casting? All right. So as of the time of this recording, uh, just watched um, the season finale of House of the Dragon last week. And so I'm having withdrawals and I just want Steve Toussaint to be in everything. Um, he was magnificent as the sea snake, um, Corliss Valerian. And I want him to be Brainiac. So I think he would be perfect in the role. He's already bald. Um, so I think he'd just be magnificent. He has the presence. Um, you know, he's a real scene stealer. He's he's not used as much as I would have liked in the first season of House of the Dragon. But every time he walks into a room, he immediately owns it. Um, and I think that is that is one of the basic requirements for a character like Brainiac. Uh, so I'm not familiar with this actor uh, or, you know, the House of the Dragon stuff, but I'm a big advocate for Brainiac to be, you know, in the next movie. I think that'd be well overdue adaptation. So I'm all for that one way or another. All right. Your Jimmy, uh, your Jimmy Olsen agenda continues with a callback to a recent episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let, let's be honest. We all absolutely adore the first it. Right. I think that goes without saying. And I do uh, believe that um, Wyatt Olaf would be absolutely fantastic as Jimmy Olsen. I think he's uh, he's like 19 these days, I think. Boy, time goes by fast, right? So he is, you know, that, that sort of, you know, young man trying to make his way, perfect age uh, to play a sort of a Jimmy Olsen. Um, 
And there is something kind of like vulnerable in his performances and something sort of open that I think would be really interesting. He would, I think he would do a good job basically portraying a character that could see himself being a friend with Clark Kent and a friend with Superman, you know, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I would like to see him in that role. Absolutely. I thought, um, I think it was a little bit underutilized in it, if anything. And then my daughter spoiled the second one for me and uh, pour one out for, for his character. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame, man. But he's fantastic in the role. And so I, I would be all about, uh, you know, having him as Jimmy Olsen. All right, you have one more. All right, so I have this crazy process where I just watch a show and I fall in love with an acting performance. And so then I just scramble to put them in anything that I want them to be in. Um, and that is my favorite show of this year. No shade to House of the Dragon, but The Rings of Power is the best thing that I have watched in the last calendar year. And it's not even close. Um, and one of the primary reasons for that is the acting performance of Morphid Clark as Galadriel. One of the powerhouse performances that I have seen in recent years. Um, and so I think she'd be perfect as Supergirl, Kara Zor-El. I desperately want her to be in a comic book movie and make her Supergirl because that seems perfect. See, that's an interesting casting. I've seen at least a few clips, um, and I think she'd probably do a really good job. I'm interested, though. They have a Supergirl that is going to be in the Flash movie, so you think they should recast that and not bring, bring no, her over? No, no, no. From my understanding, she's Earth 2, correct? Well, I mean, or some kind of alternate timeline. I'm, I mean, it's, it's not exactly clear, but it seems like... Um, there is there's shades of flashpoint in the upcoming flash movie so it's like he changes the timeline and then things are different in our world and then he changes the timeline back you know and, and so there are still some differences that remain after he messes with the timeline so very very Barry Allen in the CW show I guess you could say um so um theoretically it should be uh the same you know Kara just in a different timeline so not necessarily like earth 2 but it's it's this, this is speculation on my part you know i'm not 100% sure whether that's the well, case well based on what i've seen of sasha kaye in the role i'm very very excited about it so um maybe we can make morphid power girl or you know she doesn't Ooh. she necessarily doesn't necessarily have the 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 boob window aesthetic which is something I don't, we I, need I'm to, not a fan which of that. Is something we need to desperately move away from uh, anyways, so just make her another iteration of the character. Oh, you, you you talk Power Girl and you're speaking my language. I'm not a fan of the boob window in any way, shape, or form, but I'm a huge fan of Power Girl, of the, the Earth 2 version of, of Kara. It's oh, such a great character and so underappreciated. I would be all about seeing her on the big screen as well. Before you, before you wrap up, Chris... Um, I, I would like to say really quickly that I'm just, you know, as a huge Superman fan, we get caught up in the discourse of the minutia, you know, like should should Superman suit have trunks or no trunks? Should Superman have the spit curl S or not? You know, it, are the colors on the suit bright enough? And and all that minutia is, is, is fun to dig into as a big Superman fan. But I think when it comes to general audiences, the thing that we need to remember for Henry Cavill's next Superman movie is I think something that you said, which is we need to let Superman be Superman. Somebody needs to come in here, whether that is a comic book writer, that's a consultant like Grant Morrison, or whether that is uh, James Gunn, uh, you know, reading a bunch of comic books. I really don't care. What we need is just somebody to say, Superman needs to feel like Superman. Lois needs to feel like Lois. 
Lex needs to feel like Lex. These are the characters. They don't need to be changed or modernized. They just are. Now put them in a good story. And I think if they do that, they're going to have probably the best Superman movie of a generation on their hands. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go psychology nerd for a second, which I don't know how that didn't make my non nerdy nerdy uh, list a couple of weeks ago. But um, you and I are both intuitives, uh, according to the the MBTI assessment. So sensory type stuff like minute details, like what do they look like? What's the costume? I've never cared about a Spider-Man costume. Never. I don't care. What I care about is the faithful adaptation of the character at their core of their soul. Um, So, you know, we can make jokes about sensory details, like what does the costume look like um, and things of that nature. But for me and for my, you know, interpretation, I just I just want the character at their core to be represented on screen well. And I think that's that's the biggest misstep. I don't I don't care about, um, you know, costumes so much at all. All right. That wraps up this week's Byword Big Talk. What would you like to see in a Man of Steel film? Uh, be sure to hit us up on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Nerd by Word. Now, nerd commendations after this break. We return for our final and fan favorite segment where we recommend the good stuff to you. It is. All right, Dave, you've been preaching this gospel for quite some time. Yes, so let's go ahead and talk about Life is Strange for a second. Um, going back, God, even a couple of years ago when we first started this podcast, I spoke glowingly about a little video game developed by Don't Not Entertainment called Life is Strange. Uh, the story of Max and Chloe, Max returning to her hometown, uh, discovering that she has these strange abilities to rewind time, uh, her relationship with the various people in town. And then, um, spoiler alert, um, at the end of the game, discovering that her rewinding time and saving her best friend and potential love interest, uh, Chloe, has created or potentially created some kind of giant storm. And she is left with a choice. Uh, and the player is left with the choice of either um, going back and stopping herself from saving Chloe, thereby restoring balance, or letting the storm hit the town and potentially killing a bunch of people. And that, that's the choice you're left with at the end of the game. And so uh, I have a mad love for this game. Um, it, I thought it was incredibly emotionally affecting. Uh, I was thinking about this game uh, for weeks after I completed it. And so yeah, obviously you're left wanting more. Uh, don't, don't not, you know, as moved on. Life is Strange is sort of um, um, episodic. Each game is a different story. Uh, a different developer stepped in and actually did a prequel that uh, called Life is Strange Before the Storm that kind of uh, follows Chloe and, and her story before uh, Max returned. Um, but a sequel, obviously, is a different, a whole different proposition because the game you know, ends on two different potential endings, right? One where you sacrifice your best friend 
uh, to restore balance and one where you let the storm hit. And that is usually the ending uh, that that has sort of some uh, romantic undertones between Max and Chloe, right? So so if you're going to make a sequel, you'd have to pick one. And so, you know, video game developers have sidestepped that by basically telling other sort of stories in the Life is Strange franchise. Now, along comes Titan Comics, which uh, got the license uh, to Life is Strange a few years back. And in uh, November of 2018, they launched a four-part miniseries called Life is Strange. That is a sequel to uh, the game. Uh, Basically, uh, a sequel to one of the endings, specifically the one where you let the storm hit the uh, town to save Chloe. And, you know, proposes to move on from that ending. It was extremely successful, was uh, actually expanded into an ongoing, has now been collected in uh, six volumes, six trade paperbacks, uh, encompassing 23 issues. The story is now complete. And now that I have seen uh, the breadth of what this series attempted to do, all I can say is, holy crap, this is as good, if not better, than the game equally as emotionally affecting. Absolutely fantastic comic book storytelling. I can't believe this is something coming from Titan Comics. So the series is written by Emma Viacelli, uh, interior artist by Claudia Leonardi, coloring by Andrea Izzo, and you will notice something right away. All female creatives, which is absolutely necessary to this one because it is, in essence, a love story between Max and Chloe. Max uh, is starting to experience flashes of alternate timelines. Um, she is starting to, to feel like she's, reality is slipping away. And the only way to fix it is to remove herself from that reality. She does so uh, and ends up in a parallel universe where um, Chloe's previous girlfriend, Rachel Amber, never died and is stuck in that universe and trying to desperately find a way back to her Chloe, so she can be with her again. Uh, the 23 uh, issues are absolutely mind-blowing. It is so good. What they do so well in this series is just build relationships. You can have whole pages over and over again of just people talking and, and the conflict and, and, and the characterization. It is so engrossing. It's such a great example of how comic books don't need to be superhero fare or, or horror fare to be absolutely great. Obviously, this sucker has a big science fiction undertone, but um, it is in essence sort of slice of life stuff, you know, um, and it is so, so very well written. And at the end, you know, when it finally reaches its climax, you almost want to just jump up and cheer, which I really had to restrain myself from doing. Um, because my son was sleeping at the time and I would have woken him. Um, But it is just an absolute whopper of a series. And I think even if you have not played, uh, you know, the game, there is enough here to give you the background of what happened before. And then you just launched on this absolutely fantastic journey with these two characters that, that, that have to change and grow so much through this crisis and trying to literally reconnect across universes. This is basically a, a multiverse love story. Uh, and it is just easily one of my favorite things that I've read in, in the last couple of years. It just absolutely engrossed me. It was I was so pleased to see that a game that affected me so much and meant so much to me got a sequel that is absolutely worthy of those characters that I love so much. So, 
you know, Life is Strange uh, from Titan Comics published across uh, six volumes uh, that are, you know, easily available. I think it's also might be on Comixology Unlimited. I would have to double check that. But uh, I will put a, a link to the reading order in our show notes for those six volumes. Um, guys, this is highly recommended. It's just absolutely beautiful comic book storytelling at its best. Yeah, I've I've been meaning to check out all of this universe uh, since you first nerd commended it. Uh, the Telltale like series games that I've played so far, like the Batman and the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff. Uh, that's that's meat and potatoes to me. Like the choice based gaming is super, super fun. And I also love, you know, with my Comixology Unlimited subscription, being able to to dive in and check out some some more indie comics and kind of step away from like the cape stuff that I love so much, but kind of diversify my reading interests. And that's been, uh, you know, to my gain, you know, with things like the many deaths of Layla star and, and things of that nature where, you know, there's still supernatural or sci-fi or spiritual, you know, aspects in, in fair, but it's, it's not boom smash pow stuff. And it's a much more nuanced and, and humanistic approach to, to storytelling. And and so this is definitely and, and, and you had me at all female creative team. I think for me, one of the most annoying tropes when it comes to comic books is having straight white men uh, write, you know, characters that they don't share um, anything with. So when you can tell when they're writing um, female characters or when they're writing uh, black characters or Latine characters, it's, it can be really, really annoying and really troublesome. And so having an all-female creative team write female characters is an absolute big-time endorsement for me. Yeah, it's just such a great series. I'm going to go ahead and stop myself before I keep rambling and just <laughs> throw it to you. What are, what are you nerd commending oh this Oh my week? goodness, Dave. This series is such a fun ride um if you know anything about me you know that i love the teenage mutant ninja turtles with all of my soul um and so it had it took far too long for me to check out this series but the rise of the teenage mutant ninja turtles dave it's such a masterpiece it's so much freaking fun and um I typically am a completionist at heart and I don't nerd commend something until I've watched or read a hundred percent of it, but I'm jumping the shark here because I've only like five or six episodes into the series and it's so much freaking fun that I don't care. Um, you can watch the first season on Netflix right now, as of the time of this recording, if you have Paramount plus, um, you can watch both seasons, but Netflix also just did uh, a sequel film that I haven't checked out yet. But everything about this series is so much fun. It's it's so stripped down and reimagined to its core, down to the characterization and the voice actors, but it's so fun. You know, Leo is this aloof goofball. Raph is the big strapping leader. Mikey's still silly. Donnie's a nerd because that's something you don't mess with. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, 
Kat Graham does a great job as, as April O'Neil, who for the first time ever is, is a woman of color. Um, Eric Brauza is great as Splinter. Um, you even have um, one of my idols, Robert Williams is uh, Robin Williams, excuse me, daughter uh, Zelda is as a voice actress. And so like, it's really, really cool to see the legacy of Robin Williams, who's, uh, you know, a masterclass at, at voice acting uh, and to see his daughter, you know, to take on a role like that is really, really cool. Um, but but Ben Schwartz, if, if you're a fan of Parks and Recreation, you know him as Jean-Ralphio and uh, the Sonic films as well. But he's he's Leo here. And it's so great. Um, Omar Benson Miller as Raph is, is pitch perfect. And seeing, you know, black actors, you know, represent the turtles here. You have Brandon Michael Smith as Mikey as another black actor. Uh, Kat Graham, as I previously mentioned, it's just so cool to see a different interpretation of characters that have been around for 30 plus years and, and and have seen so many different reinventions. And that's, I think that's what I love most about the turtles is they evolve every single time. And there are elements. Yes. Even the next mutation that I enjoy every single time. And this for me, I, I've likened it to like a smoothie. It has all the ingredients that you love. They took them all in a blender, and this is the end result. And it's absolutely it's delicious. It's nutritious. It's everything. So I highly recommend Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It is such a fun ride. It's such a fun reimagining of something that I love so deeply. I am not a gatekeeper. I am not beholden to the ways of the past. This is so fun. And watching this, especially with my kids, um, has been such a fun ride. And I can't wait to keep going. I'm interested because there was some talk about, especially you know, on social media where everybody's always incredibly negative, um, about like the, the character designs on the show being... Um, you know, rather odd and off-putting. How how did you adjust to the character designs on this one? I think it was it was all within. It was an all-inclusive thing um, because it it meets and and blends in with the aesthetic for the entire show. It's a very bright neon world, and so the character design is is fine for me. I um, you know I survived uh, the Michael Bay you know, films, um, which I can even listen. That's how much I love these characters. I can even find positives there. The, the elevator scene, I'm looking right at you because that's great stuff. Um, so I, I wasn't bothered by that at all. I think the aesthetics of this show are super fun. Awesome, man. I have to check that out then. All right, that wraps up episode 129. Can you believe it, y'all? Of the Nerd Byword. Um, what would you like to see in a Superman film? Hit us up on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, um, individually, that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. Also, if you are an aspiring indie creator and you want to be featured in our Nerd at Night live stream, be sure to hit the link in our socials bio. That Calendly link will help you schedule a time to nerd out with us at nighttime. And of course... Uh... Be sure to find us on your favorite podcasting platform, because if you like what you heard, we want you to subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can drop us a rating and review as well. We are available wherever podcasts can be found. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. If it's there, if there's a radio, there's a podcast, we're there, including our very own website, nerdbyword.com.
And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Thank you.